Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the G20 summit in India, at which China and Russia were absent, and from which a lukewarm declaration on the war in Ukraine emerged. Joining us to assess the creeping authoritarianism of the Modi regime as India's Prime Minister hosted the G20 under the banner of Bharat, the Hindu nationalist name for India is Christine Fair, a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Eben A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She is a specialist in South Asia security and recently returned from India, where she spent the last two and a half months. Then we'll discuss the absent rising giant, China, whose economy is stumbling with youth unemployment at 21.3%, as Xi Jinping puts internal and external security ahead of dealing with China's economic problems. Joining us is Victor Xi, the director of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego. He is currently engaged in a study on how the coalition formation strategies of founding leaders had a profound impact on the evolution of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as constructing a large database on biographical information of elites in China. The author of Factions and Finance in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation, and the editor of Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability, Duration in Institutions and Financial Conditions, his latest book is Coalitions of the Week, Elite Politics in China, from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. Then finally, we'll speak with David Phillips, a professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and a visiting scholar at Oxford University, who was the director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University and a former senior advisor and foreign affairs expert to the United States Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. He chaired the Turkish-Armenian Reconciliation Commission and the Track 2 programs in Turkey and the Caucasus, and his books include Unsilencing the Past, Diplomatic History, the Turkey-Armenian Protocols, and most recently, Frontline Syria, From Democratic Revolution to Proxy War. We'll discuss the looming possibility of ethnic cleansing and even genocide against Armenians as tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan escalate. And joining us now is Christine Fair, who's a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She is an expert and specialist in South Asian security, and she recently returned from India, where she spent the last two and a half months. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christine Fair. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, the G20 Summit in India, at which China and Russia were absent, has ended. And, of course, there was a lukewarm declaration on the war in Ukraine. But in terms of the host, uh, Modi, there is obviously a creeping authoritarianism uh, with this uh, Modi regime, uh, who, after all, was banned by the State Department uh, some time back from even uh, entering the United States. He's hosted the G20 under the banner of Bharat, which is the Hindu nationalist name for India. So that doesn't strike me as being the right kind of tone. So, I mean, this this whole debate over the name India versus Bharat, uh, the, India's constitution makes reference to Bharat. There's nothing particularly Hindu nationalist about Bharat. The biggest problem with Bharat is that it, it, it more accurately refers to North India. 
And it, it's pretty exclusionary uh, towards those in the South. So um, people in Southern India are perhaps less enthusiastic about Bharat. But if you go to India, um, you know, there's a whole host of industries that are, you know, Bharat Petroleum, Bharat this, Bharat that. The reason why Modi has pivoted to the name Bharat is because of this multi-party coalition that's operating under the name India to take on Modi. So this is, I, I would, I would more be inclined to just put this into the electoral chicanery bin than I would in his creeping Hindu nationalist authoritarianism bin. But that observation is, of course, spot on. Uh, you know, while, while India wants to present itself as a, as a face of democracy to the world, India's de- democratic credentials have been very much retrenching in recent years. Whether you look at press freedoms, you know, uh, organs of the state like the Central Bureau of Investigations have been sent in to target think tanks, uh, universities, uh, as well as individuals uh, who are making outspoken statements in the press about the the Modi government. So you you definitely do have this retrenching democracy, and you know his party is is really clear in terms of its tolerance and even encouragement of violence against Muslims and Christians and essentially non-Hindu minorities. I've been somewhat surprised by the international inattention to what's been going on uh, in Assam. In Assam, there's essentially anti-Christian pogroms going on, and the state's done very little to tackle it. Modi himself has been quite glib, and he has, you know, he, by the way, Modi never takes questions from the press. I mean, he he has, um, I think he's done exactly one interview uh, in his tenure, and that was a, a giveaway uh, interview that he did with a Bali star, a Bollywood star who's a sycophant of his. So he has really been indifferent to the suffering of the, the Christians in Assam who have been really going through some outrageous uh, human rights abuses. Uh, but this is just sort of part of the tenor of his BJP party, which has promoted this Hindu nationalism all along. So this isn't this isn't terribly surprising. What is surprising is just how little the international community seems to care. Right? If Mussolini had a market, the history of World War II would have been quite different. So Donald Trump has his Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. It looks as if uh, Modi has the RSS, doesn't he? Does he have a, a kind of right-wing militia? I don't yeah, know what I mean... I mean, so basically, there's this uh, Sung Party Var, the, these parties that share this Hindutva agenda. So the RSS is this grassroots organization that exists at you know virtually every level of organization across India. Modi himself is an RSS guy. It is literally it's a fascist organization. It it has its uh, it, it takes its uh, inspiration from the fascist organization of the Nazis. And and so there are some people that will be very upset hearing that, but you know history is is on the side of that position. They they can they can decry the facts all they want, but those are ultimately the facts. 
Um, you have the BJP, which is the political face of Hindutva, which is this political form of Hindu identity, which is exclusive, which is Hindu chauvinist by design. And then you have these other organizations that are sort of um, like you have the VHP, for example, um, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, which is a global organization. It exists in diaspora to promote the agenda of Hindu chauvinism abroad. So you, there's a whole family of these organizations that pr- promote Hindu chauvinism. And the RSS is just one of them. But yeah, the RSS, I mean, they're basically the foot soldiers of this ideology, but they're not the only ones. We've also seen the emergence of, I mean, what what are called um, Gal Rakshaks, which literally means like cow protectors. Uh, in English, it's sometimes translated as cow vigilantes. These are individuals that beat up, even murder with impunity and without suffering prosecution, individuals largely Muslim, sometimes Christian, and Dalit, which are the the most socially oppressed people vis-a-vis India's caste system, merely on the suspicion of having um, harmed a cow, killed a cow, being in the possession of beef. And inevitably, those are just excuses uh, when the investigations are said and done you know, individuals have been beaten to death because there's a piece of meat in their refrigerator that the Gal Rakshaks uh, said was beef, but it turned out to be goat. So, you know, there's this whole sub, I guess we would call them non-state actors that execute this Hindu nationalist agenda with impunity. And Modi doesn't do anything about it. So this is this is kind of the face of, of New India. But does the diaspora, and particularly here in the United States, know what you're talking about? Are they aware that they're supporting a kind of fascist organization? I mean, uh, Ramaswamy, if he's the face of it, I can understand that. But how much does the the Indian diaspora understand who Modi really is? And do they care? Or do they simply support him? Well, first of all, there's no Indian diaspora, right? The mm-hmm. Indian diaspora, there, there are many Indian diasporas. Uh, they are, you know, we can think about, we can think about, um, there's Gujarati diasporas, there's Punjabi diasporas, there's Bengali diasporas. Um, so, you know, we can't really speak of an Indian diaspora. So there are, you know, amongst the Gujarati diaspora, Modi himself, Gujarati, there's a lot of buy-in for the myth that he represents. The story that he tells is that he was basically a T-boy. Um, he came up through the ranks of the RSS. He's, he promotes himself as being sort of like an ascetic in the service of the nation, although rumors do do surround him about his various Lothario ways. Really? Um, he's a, he's a, an avowed uh, uh, celibate, isn't he? Well, but everyone knows that that's not the case. I mean, <laughs> no, no. I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of rumors. You know, there's a rumor, for example, that, that he hooked up with Priyanka Chopra some years ago uh, during the U.N. General Assembly. You know, there's all these rumors that, you know, whatever. Uh, but so there's different there's different diasporas. And so, you know, the Gujarati diaspora tends to be supportive of him. There is this myth that he was responsible for the so-called Gujarat miracle. Um, a lot of economists have taken apart some of the more um, excessive claims about the Gujarat miracle. But amongst many people in the Gujarati diaspora, there's a lot of support for him. 
Um, then you have the Punjabi diaspora, good, a, an important subset of them are going to be the jet six. They have very different views of him, um, particularly pertaining to the farmers' protests. So we can't really speak of a homogenous Indian diaspora. We have to really look at them by ethnicity. We have to look at them by caste. We have to look at them by the ongoing relationships that they have with India. You know, there are some members of the diaspora that, you know, haven't been back to India. So I, I, I don't feel comfortable um, making these claims, but I think a very common claim that gets made in the United States is that Indian Americans typically vote Democratic. I think that that myth is also being shattered, right? Because Indian Americans are some of the wealthiest Americans. And like wealthy Americans, uh, they want to, you know, they like the features of the Republican Party, which tend to be pro-rich. And so we see this uh, in some of the, I have to say, the grotesque posturing of the two Indian Americans that are, you know, vying to be the president of the United States. Ramaswamy so, and, um, and, and uh, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the policies that, that they claim to espouse are the same kind of policies that would have precluded them, that would have precluded their parents from even coming to this country. Right. So I think it's a really, uh, I, I, I don't, I, so I don't tend to talk about the Indian diaspora because there's just, it's just too variegated of mm-hmm. a community. Um Plus, we've had people from the Indian subcontinent in the United States going back to the late 1800s, right? So we also have different generations of established Americans. So it, it's a more complicated well, community than I think commonly gets understood. Well, let's talk then about the opposition in India itself, because Modi, through a lawsuit in Gujarat, his his base basically tried to shut down the opposition leader of the long-running opposition Congress party, which is in disarray. But how close are they to making a comeback? And is their leader in or out of jail? And I think the Supreme Court sprung him, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I I think he, um, they didn't, they did not relieve him of his sentence. You know, he is still he was found guilty under this colonial era legislation, but they did suspend his sentence, um, allowing him to campaign. Right, I, and so that legislation to, that legislation is about insulting the the dear leader, right? Well, yeah, so look, the British had all of these restrictions on speech that do not provide um, the kinds of protections that Americans are accustomed to, for example. Um, if you say something that offends the, the sensibilities of a community, you, you can be charged um, under this legislation. So now, you know, depending upon the regime that's, that's in place, common sense can prevail or this kind of deliberately vague legislation can be weaponized. Right. And, and that's why the British wrote it as they did. I think we also have to be really clear about the Congress party. So if you are an Indian voter, you have some pretty grim choices. So the Congress party likes to position itself as being a stalwart of, of left of center values, but that actually really isn't the story of the Congress party. The Congress party really unleashed this degradation of Indian secularism. Um, The BJP has largely been the beneficiary of it, but, 
um, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi really was largely responsible for the degradation of India secularism. Uh, her, her son, um, following her assassination, and, you know, continued with a, a bunch of rec- reckless policies that, that further endangered Indian secularism and e- even opened the way forward for the devastation of the Babri Masjid in Ayodhya. So if you are an Indian voter, you, your choices are pretty slim. You've got this party that claims to be a secular party, the Congress party, but which really isn't. It is dominated by a dynastic party headed by a woman who is Italian. I must say, I'm, I'm not sure as an American, you know, how happy we would be. Um, I, I remember, you know, when I used to live in California, when Schwarzenegger became the governor of California, there was a lot of concerns. Would he be the presidential candidate? How many people wanted to have an, an Austrian-born president? Uh, I remember those debates well. Americans were not very comfortable. Um, even if they liked Arnold Schwarzenegger for a variety of reasons, there was discomfort about right. not having a born American as a president. So I think many Indians do find um, the the tight grip of this this Italian-born naturalized Indian citizen to be a little bit discomforting. I I don't I don't I don't uh, begrudge them those sentiments. And if the Congress party really, if, if Sonia Gandhi really had the interests of India at heart instead of her family's interests and her party's interests, we would see a more democratization of that party mm-hmm. instead of this adamant that it remain a dynastic fiefdom of, of the Gandhi dynast. Right. Um, well, on the other hand... Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it sounds like she's yeah. actually a gift to Modi. I think we're pretty much run out of time. Yeah, I think we're pretty much much run out of time. But any quick last thought? On the one hand, we've got you know this party that pretends to be secular, but actually is responsible for the degradation of Indian secularism, run by this dynastic uh, party, run by this dynastic family that seems to put the interests of themselves and their family and the party over the interests of the country. On the other hand, you have this very explicit uh, communal party that aims to make India basically a Hindu ethnic state. So, you know, if you're an Indian voter, um, it, it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite South Side, uh, excuse me, South Park episodes that ended in every election is a choice between, a, you know, a turd sandwich and a giant douche. <laughs> you know, the options are, you know, I have to say South Park often has the, the, the most cogent observations upon the world. But I think for the Indian voter, those are the kinds of choices that you're facing. Now, what India does have that the American voter does not have is that you have at every state local parties, right? So you you can essentially diversify your political portfolio, right? You you can support at the national level the BJP, but more locally, when you're looking at parties that are going to get things done for you, you can vote for these state-based, you know, ethnic or caste or, or what have you, but these highly localized parties in your state. So, mm-hmm. you know, in some sense, I'm much more optimistic about the ability of Indian democracy to survive this fascist phase than I am uh, about American democracy, because we have to live under the tyranny of the two-party system. And so Modi will never be able to dominate India in the same way the Republican Party has here, 
because he has to bring along all of these different states and there's much more electoral competition at the state level, something that we don't even have here. Well, Christine Fair, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Christine Fair, who's a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She is an expert and specialist on South Asian security and recently returned from India, where she spent the last two and a half months. We can take a brief station break back discussing the absent rising giant from the G20 China, whose economy is stumbling with youth unemployment at 21.3%, as Xi Jinping puts internal and external security ahead of dealing with China's economic problems. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Victor Shi, the director of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego. He's currently engaged in a study on how the coalition formation strategies of founding leaders had a profound impact on the evolution of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as constructing a large database on biographical information of elites in China. He's the author of Factions and Finance in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation, and the editor of Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability, Duration Institutions and Financial Conditions. And his latest book is Coalitions of the Week, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. Welcome to Background Briefing, Victor Xi. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Victor. And you're quoted in an article at the Financial Times, Xi Jinping puts China's security ahead of tackling its economic woes. And, of course, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin did not show up to the G20 conference in India, hosted by Prime Minister Modi. Not entirely a surprise, but the general impression is that China's on the rise and the U.S. is on the decline but uh, what is going on with the Chinese economy, economy? Particularly expand, if you will, on your quotes in the Financial Times article. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, the policies that we've seen in the past few years, so, you know, again, this obsession with uh, security uh, is not a new thing. Uh, it had manifested itself even before COVID. But I think this tendency was born of, uh, decades of Xi Jinping himself observing what had been going on within the party compared to his own experience as a child. So remember, he sort of grew up in the Chinese Communist Party. His father was a very senior level official. Back in the 1950s and 19, early 1960s, 
Um, there was a sense of puritanicalism that pervaded the party. Uh, you know, even very senior level officials did not um, enjoy a lot of luxuries. But certainly at that time, they did enjoy quite a bit of luxuries compared to the vast majority of China's population. But nonetheless, uh, to him, it felt very puritanical. And compare that to the 1990s and, and the 2000s, when um, corruption within the party was rampant, uh, when there was a lot of contact between the West uh, and even some very senior Chinese officials. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure some of that actually did have to do with spying. You know, um, there, there, was, there was a lot of just contact between uh, the wealthy, the, the nouveau riche in China, the West, uh, and then often involving uh, a lot of so-called princelings, i.e. the children of senior level officials. Um, so for him, uh, this uh, kind of corruption uh, and sort of contact with the West exposed the party to a lot of vulnerabilities, uh, potential vulnerabilities, and he wanted to put a stop to it. And, you know, at first he didn't do so much about it the first few years of his rule, but as he consolidated uh, power within the party, and especially after he completely reshuffled the People's Liberation Army in 2016, uh, he felt a lot more sure about his control over the entire party, the military, uh, then his kind of deep suspicion of the West began to manifest a lot more. Uh, first, you know, he already had this kind of anti-corruption campaign, which aimed at uh, eradicating his enemies, but also to reduce some of this vulnerability that he felt the party had. Uh, but then um, he, you know, went a lot further by, you know, telling all the private businesses in China that they must uh, subordinate their own desires, i.e. desires for profit, to the objectives laid out by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, this, of course, was laid out very clearly uh, with um, just kind of sanctions against and finance uh, back in 2020. And, you know, of course, you had a whole other series of events, you know, the kind of deleveraging campaign on the real estate sector because he felt the real estate sector had become too independent and also pressure the banks, pressure local government to get into all this debt, uh, crack down on private tutoring companies, and then, of course, ultimately cracking down on U.S. or Western consulting companies uh, because, you know, he saw them as potential threats to China, rolling out a whole series of national security-related legislation which, you know, by the way, the only result of these legislation is, is vastly expand the scope of what is considered uh, threats to national security, such that anything that is done by, a, you know, both Chinese and Western companies can be seen as national security threats. Uh, so certainly, you know, for him, I think it fulfills uh, this kind of deep, you know, discomfort that he had had about the state of affairs in China uh, but what, I think one thing that he might have neglected is that, um, you know, although the state of affairs, you know, the rampant corruption and all this contact with the West uh, did undermine the party uh, in some ways, it also gave a lot of prosperity to the Chinese economy. Um, so, you know, he, he, of course, did not think about the other side of the coin as much. But in sort of simplistic terms, Victor, 
he is a departure, is he not, from the trajectory that Deng Xiaoping and his successors have set, which is to engage the Chinese economy, particularly with the United States economy. And massive U.S. investments went into China, and now, for example, now the Chinese government under Xi has have forbidden government employees from having iPhones when iPhones make most of their iPhones in China. And his family, from what I understand, were mostly in the military. It seems like that he's a sort of throwback to Mao, that he only understands the military, and that's where his focus is. And he's brought in wolf warrior diplomacy Mm -hmm. and generally been, as I say, a complete departure from his predecessors. So what is his end game? Where's he heading? Yeah, I mean, I, for him, it's, it's a constant search to, uh, I mean, I think he has probably two overriding objectives. You know, as far as we can surmise, you know, of course, we can't read his mind, but we can surmise from everything that he had done since becoming the leader of China in late 2012 is that, you know, of course, he wants to keep himself in power. Uh, but also he wants to ensure that the Chinese Communist Party is uh, autonomous from um, kind of influence from uh, the West and influence from the private sector so that the Chinese Communist Party can make its own decision to strengthen itself. Uh, So I think these two objectives are very important to him. Uh, And he's done a whole, you know, a whole series of policies in the 10 years that he has been in power to ensure, uh, you know, to try to maximize these two objectives. Of course, again, you know, what he uh, maybe did not think uh, too much about are the trade-offs. You know, uh, there will be trade-offs. I mean, you can make sure the party is highly autonomous in its decision-making. First of all, it's unclear to me whether that's truly successful. Uh, But I think the policy process certainly today is a a bit more insulated, uh, as we would call it in political science than previously, but the trade-off of that is that you don't hear the problems that are faced by the private sector uh, as much. And uh, as a result, policymaking may not uh, lead to optimal uh, decision-making in terms of uh, ensuring that there's economic growth in China. And so we've seen some very clear examples of that. Uh, For example, you know, there's Suddenly, Xi Jinping, for whatever reason, he decided to crack down on the tutoring industry. Uh, but guess what? You know, the tutoring industry uh, has been a major employer of college graduates. And, you know, people complain about it. You know, it's involution and, you know, parents are having to pay for more and more of this uh, tutoring for the kids only so that they become tutors themselves upon graduation. Uh, but guess what? You know, this is for a lot of East Asian countries. This is true in Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. Uh, well, area <laughs> in countries uh, in Taiwan. And um, it does create a lot of employment. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, you know, it is an important part of the service sector in East Asia. But upon the crackdown, I think that actually meaningfully contributed to youth unemployment. And then suddenly government is panicking. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, all these... Um, college graduates, they can't find jobs, what do we do? Uh, But no one told him that, you know, when you have a crackdown of the scale in the tutoring industry would cause all this unemployment among college graduates, 
uh, or maybe they did tell him and he just didn't care. I, I find that, um, you know, hard to believe. I think it's just a kind of lack of knowledge uh, about how the economy operates and that there's always some kind of trade-off in uh, economics when you impose harsh regulations. And he's just not so aware of that. He's very aware of, I think, you know, what he grew up in, what he knows well is how the party operates, how the party controls coercive apparatus, uh, including the secret police organs and the military. He knows that very well, and he's done a very good job uh, exerting control over these organizations, as we have seen. But he he just uh, is not aware of some of the trade-offs uh, in the economy. Well, I don't know that he's that educated, is he? But the fact that you just brought up uh, youth unemployment in China, it's now at a record 21.3% of Chinese citizens between the ages of 16 and 24 in the cities are unemployed. Uh, and it's lucky to get a lot worse. And as far as I can tell, Xi Jinping's only response to that is to crack down with more surveillance. And, and as you just pointed out, the backlash from cracking down on the tutoring industry has contributed to youth unemployment. But does he have any real plans to find work for this extraordinary percentage, 21.3% youth unemployment, which is likely to go up considerably? Well, actually, in reality, the youth unemployment rate probably is, is higher than 21% or 23%. Uh, basically, uh, there, there's a large number of people who are so-called self-employed. Uh, so for young people who sell even, you know, uh, $50 worth of goods online, uh, you know, whatever it is they sell, you know, it could be handicraft, uh, whatever, stickers, <laughs> whatever, that is counted as employment. But, you know, obviously the income level would be uh, well below sustaining for these young people. So if you count people whose income is below uh, even the poverty line in China, in urban China, I think the ratio would be significantly higher than 21%. Uh, does he have any real plans? I think the, the only uh, real things that we're, we're seeing right now is him walking back some of the previous policies. And, and you know, I think you know, on the one hand, some of these policies should never have been implemented in the first place, or at least they should have been implemented in a very different way. Uh, and it took a while for this readjustment to happen, but at least some of it is happening. Uh, so one area of the economy that's uh, clearly driving the growth slow down is the real estate deleveraging campaign, which started in 2021. Um, I think you know, most investors in that space could have told Xi Jinping that this would not end well. Uh, it would dramatically slow down investment, economic growth, et cetera, in China. For some reason, kind of uh, his advisors did not tell him that, and he himself did not know that reality, even though, I mean, in a sense, he should have known because uh, he had been uh, local leaders for decades and decades. So he knows how this whole real estate investment driven growth dynamics uh, work. Um, but, you know, it took him a while to change course, but we are beginning to see um, meaningful changes to the policies. Property developers are once once again allowed to re-leverage um, 
very high down payment requirements for buying real estate, uh, that is being lowered across the board. Um, so a lot of the previous policies to control housing prices uh, and also housing leveraging, uh, they're being unwind. Um, and we'll see if it works. I mean, I think it, it will have some effectiveness in, in the first tier cities of China. Uh, also, the tutoring industry, I think in reality, it is coming back to some extent. Uh, there's still some regulations over it, uh, but, but I think someone high up told the agencies that, okay, we're not going to really crack down as much on the tutors. Um, you, know, you know, if it happens, it happens. Um, so I think walking back previous policies is one way is, is currently the clearest plan that I can see to revive the economy. But just in closing, though, uh, Victor, since Tiananmen, uh, with the aspiration for democracy amongst the young Chinese demonstrators who were brutally put down, the Chinese Communist government have encouraged nationalism and materialism. And if you've got massive youth unemployment, then materialism, how do you, they don't have any purchasing power. So what's he going to do about the discontent amongst the young, apart from increasing surveillance and, uh, and all of the sort of Orwellian tools that he has with the secret police mm -hmm. and the military? I mean, he's, he's, remember, he's the guy that complained about the young Chinese guys imitating Korean K-pop and talking about sissy boys and how they got to join the military. I mean, he's he's a bit of a reactionary, and, a very, and my understanding is he's he's very sensitive about being slighted as well, maybe due to his lack of education. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So just in closing, what's your... Yeah. So I think there there is this kind of problem with this puritanical out, uh, worldview, uh, which is that he, he doesn't realize uh, an important component, and you know, some would say the most important component of the modern economy, especially as a country enters middle income and eventually higher income, is the service sector. And uh, in the service sector involves, you know, all this kind of what he would see as frivolous undertakings, uh, like you know, uh, paying to for products and services from teen idols, like buying luxury purses luxury cars, um, like going to the theater, like going to nightclubs and enjoying a night out, you know, having a few drinks, um, all of these things he sees as frivolous. Uh, and you can see even, even at the very beginning of his rule, you saw this, like when he, uh, I think it was 2013, he came to the U S he, uh, he was in Seattle actually giving a, a speech. And I, I attended that speech. It was the closest I ever came to Xi Jinping. I was like 10 feet away from him. Um, he said that, you know, uh, when people in China, well, he was referring to sort of in rural China, can have um, meat to eat a few times a week, that is a sign of prosperity. I mean, that's his definition of living well is when you can eat meat a few times a week, you know. Uh, so he doesn't see all this other sort of frivolous undertaking as vital to the economy. But in fact, uh, for the economy to achieve high income status, people will engage in all this so-called frivolous undertaking, and that is going to drive a part of the economic growth. Uh, and by sort of neglecting and sometimes outright banning um, a lot of these undertakings, um, these policies are holding back economic growth. Um, so I think 
you know, I think he's starting to realize that, but his worldview has to change in a pretty substantial way to encourage more of the service sector uh, driven economic growth in China. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Victor Xi. Thank you. Great to be here. And again, I've been speaking with Victor Xi, the director of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California, San Diego. He's currently engaged in a study on how the coalition formation strategies of founding leaders had a profound impact on the evolution of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as constructing a large database on biographical information of elites in China. He's the author of Factions and Finance in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation, and the editor of Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability, Duration Institutions and Financial Conditions. And his latest book is Coalitions of the Weak, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the looming possibility of ethnic cleansing and even genocide against Armenians as tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan escalate. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Phillips, who's professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and a visiting scholar at Oxford University. He's the former director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University and a former senior advisor and foreign affairs expert to the U.S. Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. He chaired the Turkish-Armenian Reconciliation Commission and the Track 2 program in Turkey and the Caucasus. And his books include Unsilencing the Past, Diplomatic History, the Turkey-Armenian Protocols, and most recently Frontline Syria, From Democratic Revolution to Proxy War. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Phillips. Thanks, Ian. So, David, Kim Kardashian has written a letter to uh, President Biden urging him to act urgently to stop what she calls a genocide against uh, Christian Armenians and also to sanction the uh, authoritarian government of Azerbaijan. Do you think what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh is genocide? Of course it is. But first, let's just determine what has happened there. Um, In 2020, Azerbaijan launched an, an aggression against ethnic Armenians. As a result of that attack, Um, Many people were killed. 3,900 Armenians died during the 44-day war, beginning on September 27, 2020, and over 100 civilians were driven from their homes. Uh, Since then, um, Azerbaijan has closed the Lachin Corridor, which allows 
connection between Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh, as it's called by Azeris, uh, and Armenia itself. And as a result of that, we see all kinds of civilian suffering. So if you look at the definition of genocide and the actions of uh, Baku, uh, which are supported by Turkey, no doubt it's a genocide. It's good that Kim Kardashian wrote a letter to President Biden, who has made preventing genocide a cornerstone of his administration. So it's not ethnic cleansing or it's both, is it? I'm just trying to get, I know it's, it seems pedantic to try and get a definition here given the human suffering. So it is ethnic cleansing um, as well, uh, but suffice it to say that Azerbaijan's actions have inflicted terrible suffering and a, and a huge toll on ethnic Armenians, and they seem determined to make uh, Artsakh unlivable so that Armenians will flee uh, to Armenia itself, thereby rendering Azerbaijan a more ethnically pure state. So the reason I'm calling you, David, is that you testified last week to the House Foreign Affairs Committee about this issue. And it seems to me that this is a real powder keg and possibly a new front in a war, and even a war that could involve the United States and Russia, which is, of course, is what we have now in Ukraine. And uh, you testified to the Tom Landers Human Rights Commission in, in the Foreign Affairs uh, Committee, along with Luis Marino Ocampo, the former prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. So my sense, David, and you, you're the expert on this region, is that this is a real flashpoint, and both Armenia and Azerbaijan are accusing each other of military buildups. The U.S. is sending 85 troops for an exercise tomorrow, Monday. So is it possible that there could be another war here and one that could eventually involve the U.S. and Russia? Uh, there's already a war going on. Already people are being killed and driven from their homes. And the U.S. already has, in its national legislation, uh, uh, bills that are capable of deterring or punishing Azerbaijan and its Islamist proxies. Uh, these include the uh, Global Magnitsky Act, which allows the U.S. to sanction individuals for human rights abuses. Um, it also includes other legislation. Uh, the Freedom Support Act has Section 907, which allows the U.S. to target individuals for their crimes against humanity or for their massive corruption. In this case, Azerbaijan's leaders are guilty of both. But the U.S. still has relatively good ties with Azerbaijan, do they not? And certainly Israel does. Israel's close to uh, Azerbaijan because of their enmity towards Iran. But on the other hand, the Russians seem to be abandoning Armenia and throwing their support behind Azerbaijan. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's a new democratic government in Armenia and Putin does not want democratic governments. That's why he's waged this war against Ukraine. 
and he's much more comfortable with a gangster regime uh, in the form of the dynastic Aliyev clan. I don't think it so much has to do with the form of government, but uh, more to do with energy exports. Azerbaijan is a major producer of oil and gas, uh, especially now with the Ukraine war, the U.S. is looking to diversify its sources of uh, carbon supplies. Uh, Azerbaijan has an infrastructure in place to research, exploit, and transport the oil and gas. So here the U.S. seems to be making a tactical decision that uh, energy supplies are more important than humanitarian concerns. But also, isn't Russia transferring its embargoed oil via uh, Azerbaijan to the global market to finance the war in Ukraine? Yes, that's true. There's a blend uh, that in, of oil and gas that includes Russian supplies. It's Moscow's way of trying to avoid sanctions. It's well-documented and well-known. The U.S. has to make a decision about whether it wants to enforce sanctions uh, and forego friendly relations with Azerbaijan in service of um, putting the squeeze on Moscow and punishing it for its war in Ukraine and its efforts to circumvent prohibitions on the sale of oil and gas. So what do you make of uh, the Russian foreign ministry on Friday summoning the ambassador from Armenia? They seem to be very upset about this exercise that's taking place tomorrow, Monday, with the 85 U.S. military personnel, along with Armenian military personnel. And also, the Russians have totally failed to keep the Luxon Corridor open to this landlocked enclave, which means that that's why they're being starved. And uh, Aliyev's basically said to them, you know, you can get out or... To quote him, bend your necks, which I guess is his way of saying bow to him. Or get on the chopping block for decapitation. I see. Uh, either way, um, Azerbaijan is putting a lot of pressure on Armenia. Russia is acting with uh, great hypocrisy because it has been selling weapons to both Azerbaijan and Armenia. The Armenians have been trying to uh, play it both ways, but now it's time to make a choice. Are you going to be with the coalition of democracies around the world, or are you going to succumb to Russia, Azerbaijan, and Turkey's pressure for autocracy? Uh, both Armenia and uh, Artsakh are functioning democracies with pro-Western proclivities, the U.S. should clearly state its support and its willingness to uh, expand security cooperation so Russia doesn't look to extend its conflict and Azerbaijan is deterred from attacking. So how close are they to that decision, the Russians throwing their lot in with Azerbaijan and then even getting involved in a military action against Armenia? And how close is the West, the U.S., and NATO to coming to Armenia's rescue? So I don't think it's going to come to a live-fire war, um, but the U.S. is clearly sending a, a signal that it won't tolerate aggression against Armenia. 
which is an ally uh, and an important security partner. Uh, Armenia needs to stand up. It needs to make demands of Russia uh, and of Azerbaijan, and they need support from the United States so those demands are listened to. But what kind of support? If It doesn't sound like Armenia is in a strong military position, particularly if Russia sides with Azerbaijan. And you've got Turkey as well. And Turkey, by the way, supplied the drones that that uh, caused essentially the defeat of uh, Armenia in, in the most recent war. Uh, and, of course, those drones are manufactured by Erdogan's son-in-law, who's getting rich off the Ukraine war. So you're talking about the TB2 drones that were provided by Turkey to Azerbaijan. Also, Israel provided its drone technology to Azerbaijan. These drones allowed Azerbaijan to win the 44-day war. And since it's been on a roll, putting more pressure on the Armenian population and threatening to ethnically cleanse Armenians so that Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh can become a Muslim enclave, enclave uh, rendering two centuries at a minimum of Christianity in Armenia a non-factor. Right, but what about the military disparity? Isn't there a military disparity if you got if you got Israel, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Russia ganged up on Armenia? So this is tragically the lot of Armenians. You know, they um, have great powers ganging up against them. You know, the the U.S. talks a good game about supporting Armenia, but um, it's been reluctant to get more directly involved. So Armenia needs to clearly state its position, and it needs to seek support from other countries, including the U.S., uh, left to their own devices. Um, Armenians will be slaughtered in what I call a second Armenian genocide. So, apart from Kim Kardashian and yourself, who's sounding the alarm? <laughs> well, there is a very well-organized Armenian-American community. The Armenian diaspora you know, is well-heeled and well-organized, and groups like the Armenian Assembly of America have been sounding the alarm. There are congressional hearings going on. Uh, we've seen some media reports about the situation uh, in Artsakh. So there is an increasing awareness that the genocide is underway. Now what has to happen is the international community needs to stand up and oppose Azerbaijan's actions. Uh, we have the laws on the books. We don't have to use the genocide convention if the U.S. is serious about deterring Azerbaijan, we have the legal mechanisms to do so. But an exercise involving 85 U.S. troops, I see the symbolism, but I don't see the utility. So it's symbolically important. You know, these uh, uh, troop movements are going to be in Armenia, just on the other side of the border. They're intended to send the signal to Azerbaijan that any aggression won't be tolerated. Whether Baku listens and responds remains to be seen, but they'd be foolish to ignore this warning. You know, the U.S. clearly stands with Armenia. Uh, 
The U.S. is going to lend troops to these exercises, provide equipment as well. So it's a critical moment in the future of the Armenian nation, including Artsakh, uh, for survival, and uh, a crucial moment to deter Azeri aggression and to move on from this tragic period. But what say the Azerbaijanis, and after all, uh, Aliyev is, is a thug and a crook uh, and a kleptocrat, and he comes from a dynast- dynasty of, that, of autocratic leaders, uh, family, mafia, really. Mm-hmm. Maybe he just uh, calls our bluff. What happens then? So, you know, the Biden administration needs to be resolute. If it's going to issue warnings and make statements, uh, it needs to walk the talk. And not just the U.S., but the Minsk Group, which is established within the OSCE to negotiate the future status of Artsakh and relations between Armenia and Azerbaijan, needs to be activated. We need all hands on deck. There should be an international coalition of concerned countries that are responding to this second Armenian genocide. Well, David Phillips, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, thank you. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes out